Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Start. Nā mihi nui, and a big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later in the show, we meet a couple of winners of the New Zealand Association of Scientists medals, which have just been announced. But first up, last week we heard about the importance of strong social relationships in helping us have a healthy old age. Being able to get out and about is an important part of that, whether it's walking, taking the bus, driving or something else. Issues around transport and older people really interest Rebecca Brookland at the University of Otago. She's had several Health Research Council grants looking at older drivers. So I flew, drove and then walked to her office in Dunedin to find out more. Transport, it's such a huge area of everybody's life. How we get from A to B and how we get there safely is where I come to it with young drivers. But with older people it means so much more than that. For older people their ability to connect with their communities and engage in what's happening is critical to their quality of life and their connection. And their sense of independence as well. Definitely. It's that, and that comes across for young people and old people. What driving represents is a substantial amount of independence and the ability to decide what you want to do and when you want to go to places is huge for a lot of people. It's a facet of our lives I guess we take for granted until it's no longer an option. And so for older people especially, once they move into their later years and their health can start to deteriorate and we're very much a car-centric, car-dependent society, the impacts of no longer being able to drive um, can be huge on people's quality of life and can lead to depression, social isolation, and in some cases early move into rest home care and some studies have shown um, premature mortality associated with driving cessation. The impacts are large. So when we talk about older drivers, do we know how many there are out there? Yeah, we do, and they are a growing population. So back in 2001, there was about 41,000 people over the age of 80 who still had a licence, and they represented one in three people over 80. And by 2016, that number had more than doubled to 91,000 people over 80 that still had their licence, and that represented one in two people over 80 are still licensed to drive. So they're a huge demographic, and a lot of them will be still driving really well and really safely, and they'll continue to do that into their 90s for some of them. Do we have any idea what the oldest driver has been? I can tell you from our study. We've got um, some drivers that are 96 in our study, but I think there's drivers in New Zealand that are over 100. What would be a perfect world in terms of people's mobility? So there's a concept called optimal mobility, which is this idea that people can go where they want to go, when they want to go, and how they want to get there, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be car dependent. It's just about having options available that are accessible to people. So we are moving towards some alternative transport options with automated vehicles, 
they are a long way off and probably in any scale that are going to make significant changes, we're decades away. But the idea of transport, and it's not necessarily public transport either because people with mobility issues have issues around accessing public transport and being able to manage them. But if we had systems in place where people could get picked up and dropped off when they wanted to and where they wanted to and also have assistance with their packages and and manoeuvring around places like hospitals. So it's sort of a wraparound support system to help people get to where they need to go. It could be better pavement so that people who might use a walker, for instance, can... All of those things integrated, and that's where it gets very complex because it's not just transport policy, it's urban planning as well, and then it's the health systems and accessing those services. And we know from the literature and some of their early findings that for people's transport is being picked up by families and friends. So we're still, even though they're not, no longer able to drive themselves or drive as often as they wish to or under, you know, at night and things, it's predominantly being picked up by partners and families. And that works when you've got people who live near those support networks. But as we become, you know, more spread from our families or we have more people ageing in place, those options aren't there for everybody. And we also have families who, quite a lot of them are kind of in the sandwich generation where they are caring for older parents and still caring for their own, you know, teen, early adult family of their own. So they're very stretched. Well, let's just stick with driving for a minute. Mm-hmm. So as, as we get older, what tends to be a typical trajectory? So you get to your 60s, you're still completely onto things, you're happy to hop in your car and go on a long holiday mm-hmm. perhaps. Then what starts to happen? So you could still be like that at 90. Like it's really not aged base. Um, so be quite careful to make, make it clear that we're not about taking licences away from people or stopping them driving based on age, which is why New Zealand moved away from an aged base driving assessment process back in 2006. So, so now, remind me what happens now? Yeah, so now when you get to 75, you go to your GP primarily and get a fitness to drive medical certificate. So that's an in-room consultation. And then when you're 80, that happens again, and then every two years after that. And the GPs have some different options, so you can just, they can pass you straight away, or they could refer you to have a driving driving test if they think that you might need it, or there's also OT, driving-related assessments, which are more thorough and can look at things around vehicle modifications if needed, so people can still continue to drive. And do you know anything about when people stop driving, is it something that they are choosing themselves to stop or the doctor is basically going no I don't think you should be driving. So it's once again it's really diverse we know from an our former driver study it's a mixture most of them chose when to stop driving but for some of them it was an abrupt something's happened and they've had to stop or it's been a gradual decline in ability or an awareness that they're just not as confident or as comfortable as they were previously and so they come to that choice it does vary quite a lot. Um, the literature does show us that females are more likely to stop driving on their own, whereas males are more likely to probably need a little bit of a motivator to stop. And that we don't know why that is. It's the same with driving anxiety. Females report higher levels of driving anxiety than males. And we hypothesise that possibly that might be something to do with what it means to have your licence, and particularly for previous generations or older generations of males where having a driver's licence was a huge part of self-identity. Well, such a rite of passage when you're a teenager. Yeah, and the current older females haven't driven as long as the men. You know, they've come to licensing or driving later, generally. So the 
uh, older drivers coming through in the next 10 to 20 years, the females will be more similar to the males because they will have been licensed all their lives and very reliant on a car to get around. So it'll be quite interesting to see what those changes mean as well. I'm thinking of older people that I know and what happens over time tends to be that they they venture less far afield. You know, they tend to stay closer to home and it might be what they used to go to the doctor just around the corner. Mm -hmm. They pop out to the local supermarket. They go to have a coffee with a friend. Yeah, Yeah, so we call that a version of self-regulation, so people recognising their capabilities and managing it in terms of their driving, so so that it gives them the option to continue to drive to some places anyway, rather than just abruptly stopping and then having to have all those needs met by somebody else or some other way of transport. We don't understand a lot about self-regulation in terms of how conscious those decisions are and how it relates to when they do ultimately decide to stop driving, which is partly what we're going to look at in our larger project. So tell me a bit more about the project. These are two Health Research Council of New Zealand funded projects. The first one started in 2015 and it has three studies within it. So there's the GP fitness to drive assessment study, which I've mentioned. Um, There's a component just looking at former drivers and trying to understand what their transport needs are and how they're meeting them and what mobility issues they're having. And then the bigger project, we recruited from the electoral roll a sample of older drivers, 65 years and older. So we have 1,181. And their family members, if they had somebody that we could interview. It's a nationwide sample, so there's 675 family members as well. So we've done those baseline interviews with those older drivers and family members. And it's around, basically, what are their transport practices? Where are they going? How often are they driving? Have they started to think about driving sensation or made any plans for that? And also some of their baseline health and wellbeing measures because the idea is so with the new project we've just had funded it's a follow-up study so we're going to go back to those older drivers and family members next year so it'll be two years since we went to them first time and then two years after next year so 2021 we'll go back again so we're going to try and follow their progress over time in terms of their driving how it changes things like self-regulation does it change over time some of them will give up driving. We want to understand the circumstances around that, abrupt or gradual, how they're coping with that, the impact on any health and wellbeing outcomes, particularly interested in the social health outcomes, so which comes where social isolation and depression particularly come into play. Yeah. I'm imagining there might be quite different patterns for people, say someone who lives in a small rural town versus someone who lives somewhere like Auckland. Mm-hmm. So Auckland... There's a lot of traffic, which I imagine would be quite intimidating for an older person, but then there's probably also more public transport options there, whereas in the small town, the roads are a bit quieter, and if you didn't drive, there's really no other way Mm -hmm. of getting around. Yeah, so that's... Also, what we're hoping to be able to look at in more detail, with taking having a nationwide sample, we've got to be able to look at some of those rural-urban differences in terms of access to other transport options, but also in terms of the roading environment and how that changes people's ability to cope with driving, because it's quite a different challenge in those two different places. But then you have high-speed roads in the in a rural area, which can also be quite challenging, and lots of potential trucks and things on narrow roads. We're also interested in older Māori and their transport and mobility needs, so just over 15% of the cohort of Māori, and just over 50% of older Māori live in semi-urban or rural areas, so they live in quite remotely from public transport. So it's, it's quite complex, I think, would be the best way to sum it up. But ultimately, we need to keep people 
mobile and out and about so that they can socialise. Definitely. We certainly don't want people giving up before they need to. Driving anxiety is something that can be worked through and managed. You don't want it to be the precursor to someone stopping if they don't really need to. Same with vehicle modifications. You know, if someone's having trouble getting in and out of a vehicle, that doesn't mean they can no longer drive. It just means that maybe they need to look at having a swivel base put on their seat or something done with their mirrors so they don't have to turn their neck so much. So, so from that point of view, as long as people are safe, we want them to continue to drive, especially when we have few alternative transport options. But also, second to that, um, most people at some point will get to the point where they can no longer drive to all the places they want to go or drive at all. And so we want people to actually think about that. What does that look like? Like I think about retirement and I think about where I might live, but do you think about transport in that? Very little people, especially certainly we're finding in our work, got any given any thought to planning for no longer being able to drive. And it's partly a denial. So I want to think about it, but also it's just not really on people's radar. And then sometimes new things come along and I'm thinking about sort of older members of my extended family and electric bikes have revolutionised their retirement. Mm-hmm. And lime scooters, maybe, I'm not sure. And so this is the other thing. Like a lot of older people, after the car, their next mode of transport is walking. Walking for an older person comes with a lot of issues as well and can actually increase their risk of injury, whether it be a collision with another vehicle or a cyclist or a scooter rider or or by falling with uneven paving. So it's about looking at the whole system and how it caters for an ageing population. Um, but on the plus side of walking is you get some health benefits yes, from that as well. Yes, most definitely, yes, most definitely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that sometimes strikes me when I'm out walking is at traffic lights and pedestrian crossings. Some of those pedestrian crossings have quite short crossing times mm-hmm. and I, I watch older people who can walk a little more slowly struggle to get across the road in time. Yeah. It's a very unfriendly environment for anybody that's got any mobility issue, regardless of age is what I would say about those systems. And that partly comes back to how we view ourselves as road users and this idea that the car is the dominant vehicle on the road and it has the precedent over everything else. I think we're getting a shift in that mindset that actually they're shared spaces and that we just need to be more accommodating for everybody, not just older people but all road users. Yes, it's been interesting because I come from Wellington where they've just made some reasonably major changes to our bus system and some of the things that I don't think are particularly friendly as I've seen bus stops that used to be right in a shopping centre moved several blocks away. Yeah so from an infrastructure point of view for running the buses and how the services link up it possibly works better but for for the users and we want to encourage people to use public transport they those systems won't work for everybody. Tell me about some of the things we could think about in in terms of how we design our cities and people moving around Mm. in them. So if we're thinking about public transport, so many people can still make use of public transport once they can no longer drive, but we need to think about the location of the start of those public transport systems from where people live and how do they get there. So if they have to walk from their home, it may be up or down a hill one way or the other. And even if it's more than 100 metres or a couple of hundred metres, that could be enough of a barrier to make it inaccessible for people. So there's this concept called moorings, which basically is essentially having things like seats along the walking paths towards public, or between public transport, so people can stop and take a moment to rest, gather themselves up and then carry on again in their journeys. It also gives a set place where people can socialise, because people naturally congregate to where there's a resting place.
so that can have an added benefit of some social contact for people as well. Thanks, Rebecca. And Rebecca Brookland is a research fellow in the Department of Social and Preventative Medicine at the University of Otago. Koto tato au horihori tene, he hotaka e panaki te putaio, te taio, me te kopapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with our changing world. Now, the New Zealand Association of Scientists has just been celebrating some of our leading scientists at their annual awards. A big congratulations to the winners. We're going to catch up with a couple of them, who are both at the University of Otago. The 2018 Cranwell Medal for Science Communication has gone to Department of Microbiology and Immunology Teaching Fellow Judith Beatty. In microbiology, I teach general microbiology and then applied and environmental microbiology, looking at applications of it in the real world. And all my teaching's at second year level. Now, I gather yesterday you were up north of Dunedin finding out about cheese making, so tell me about that. Oh yes, uh, cheese making's a bit of a, a passion and a good thing to do at this time of year. I'm getting ready to incorporate some more um, cheese making into my lectures on applications of microbiology in the real world. The Cromwell Medal is a medal for science communication, so tell me about some of the things that you do outside of your day-to-day teaching. As a microbiologist and also as a mum, I was watching my children go through school and uh, teachers often kept on asking me, could I bring some science into the classroom? So I started doing that and it it sort of all grew from there. Uh, About 20 years ago I started offering workshops for teachers to try and help them just know about some of the wonderful microbiology in the world around us. And then that didn't progress how I thought because teachers seemed to have trouble then applying that into the classroom. So I thought, right, different approach. I started looking at interacting with the school students directly. And I looked at several different ages, primary, intermediate, and found that a really good age to centre on was the year 11, first year of NCEA. And there are a couple of achievement standards in there that not many schools teach because it comes under the science of biology umbrella and they are internals and they're not compulsory, but it's all about microbes in the world around us. And a lot of teachers put it in the too hard basket. So I thought, right, that's a really good place to do some, some outreach and some liaison. And so we've created a program for year 11 secondary school pupils and their teachers and so the local schools will bring in classes of year 11s into our department here in the middle of the year between our university teaching semesters and we run a two and a half hour hands-on workshop so we cover a lot of microbiology in that time and the achievement standard is all about microbes and the interaction with humans. So it's wide and varied and we cover things like um, antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, vaccination, um, microbes making food, sweet cheese comes up again, and you can move on to looking at gene editing, the, the CRISPR-Cas or the new technologies if if the students lead you that way, you can throw things at them. Botox. Why do we have Botox? Is it an advantage? Is it a disadvantage? Um, even agriculture, the nitrogen-producing bacteria in the soils. We need that a lot in our country. So there's so many wonderful everyday examples, and we hope that that is helping getting microbiology out there. And it's, it's 
learning for life, really. How many years have you been doing this? We've been running those workshops for the last 10 years, and we have between five and 600 pupils come in from the local secondary schools every year. So it's getting up there in big numbers now. And about 10 years ago with those workshops, I was also wondering about the rural schools, the schools that aren't in the urban environment so don't have access to a university and so I've then go out to some rural schools. Most years I try and go to a couple of rural schools ranging from um, Catlins, Invercargill, Tianau, Queenstown, Wanaka, Cromwell and Lawrence are the places I've been to in the past. Are you finding that students are interested in science? Oh, yes. Yeah, students interact and love it. And because of that, I love teaching them. So in the both the workshops where the students come into our department and where we go out to the rural areas, we get the students using microscopes at times 1,000 magnification. And they have that wonderful moment where they see um, maybe a beautiful symmetric uh, algae or diatom or a motile protozoa or very small bacteria and they go, wow, and they're hooked, I hope. So it really is about opening their eyes. Yes, the lifelong learning and getting them to think about the environment and hopefully microbiology might be something they they think of in the future and go, oh, yeah, I've done a bit of that and that was fun. Do you think the opportunity to meet real scientists and, and have access to role models is important in this as well. Yeah, very, very much. And especially as a woman, I like to get out there as a a female scientist and and hopefully encourage other young girls that science is a great profession. What do you say to people when they say, why does science matter? I think science is just all around us. It really impacts on, on our lives and hopefully with knowledge we can make informed decisions. My PhD was in gastrointestinal microbiology, which is now at the forefront of of new microbiome-associated research and knowledge. We're just learning all the time. Thanks, Judith. That was Judith Beatty from the University of Otago, winner of the 2018 Cranwell Medal for Science Communication. The Marsden Medal is awarded by the New Zealand Association of Scientists for a lifetime of outstanding service to science. This year, it's been jointly awarded to marine scientist John Montgomery at the University of Auckland and biochemist Warren Tate at the University of Otago. I asked Warren how he describes what he does these days. I'm a biomedical scientist who works on unexplained diseases where we don't have therapies like Alzheimer's disease and ME-CFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which affects about 20,000 New Zealanders. But perhaps 20 or 30 years ago, what would you have said? Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, I would have said I was a discovery molecular biologist, just looking into the cell, uh, actually focusing on protein synthesis and finding out new things about it. And I managed to find two or three novel things. That sounds remarkable to me. Would you like to tell me about these discoveries? What was the first one you made? Well, the first one was my first genetic engineering experiment, cloning a gene, and we discovered this gene had a very unique structure which had never been found before, which was a stop protein synthesis signal in the middle of it. And it turns out we had stumbled upon, purely by chance, a new method of gene regulation, which is called by the long-name translational frame-shifting, where... The cell organelle, the ribosome, which is actually reading the code in in a messenger RNA, slips 
normally it has to keep very much in frame, and that's the whole principle by which we can make proteins in the cell that are real and what we want. But uh, in this case, in, a ver- in one in ten passengers, the cell organelle slips on this particular site, and that's where translational frame shifting occurs. And so you either terminate the synthesis of the protein or you can get a different product. And it turns out that actually HIV uses this mechanism. So when we discovered it was novel and then it was discovered, although in biology it's very rare, viruses actually quite often use it. And so that took me on to working on HIV. So I moved from being just simply a discovery molecular biologist to actually some really important implied problems. So why does the virus use it? What does it allow the virus well, to do? Well, the, the great thing from the virus's point of view, and any virus really, it needs to be very economical in the way it does things. So it can have a very small genome, and it has to make its structural proteins and enzyme proteins in just a, a critical ratio. So it uses this mechanism to make a big protein and then chops it up, and it shifts at the site so it gets just the right... Uh, ratio for its structural and enzyme protein. So it's a kind of a brilliant uh, thought process that went behind the evolution of this mechanism for the virus. So once you understood this was going on in protein synthesis, what did you think it might allow you to do? What we then became interested in was in the viral biology. I didn't really know too much about HIV biology and realised this was actually a vulnerable point in uh, the biology which hadn't been exploited any of the attempts of developing drugs against HIV. So we, we actually started a drug discovery uh, program and we developed assays where we could do high-throughput screening of chemical compounds to try and see if we could modulate this event. We did this in collaboration with the Walter and Eliza Hall high-throughput chemical screening unit in Melbourne and we have actually now isolated compounds which can modulate the event. The interesting thing is the biotech industry, which for a long time was interested in developing new compounds to have in the toolbox to combat this illness, are now more interested in actually things which will totally clear the virus from humans. So um, uh, although we've had quite a lot of discussion with biotech industries at the moment, it hasn't been taken up. So frame shifting was your first discovery. What was your yeah. second discovery? Well, from that actually came a, a second dis- a discovery about the genetic code, and that was that the genetic code, which was solved in the late 1960s, is a beautiful expression of, uh, of genetics and protein synthesis, where there are 64 boxes of a triplet code, and, and all of those specify something. And... For stopping protein synthesis, there were three of these boxes, triplet, uh, three-letter words in a way, that were seemed to be for stop. And so the dogma for 30 or 40 years was that the signal for stop was, was just three letters. And what we found, with the fact that the, uh, the stop uh, signal was actually decoded by a protein, not a tRNA in protein synthesis, as, as the amino acid code words are. I always thought, when I was a young scientist, that there wasn't any reason why it had to be a three-letter code. And so, knowing that it was decoded by a protein, we actually looked to see whether the signal was bigger, and we found that, in fact, um, 
there's a, it's more like a sequence element which specifies stopping and protein synthesis and the, f- the base following the three letters is critically important. And in fact, the stop signal, which many people in, uh, throughout the world thought was the boring part of protein synthesis, turns out now the stop signal is probably the most interesting signal because you can regulate its efficiency and other events come in, and translational frame shifting is one of those. Although HIV doesn't have a stop signal in there, uh, the first example found in viruses, Rouse sarcoma virus, which is another retrovirus, does have a stop code on. And so if it's a, what we, we've now called a weak signal, then the decoding organelle in the cell, the ribosome, stalls at that site and there's time for this slippage event to occur to change its frame. So the second discovery then really was that the stop signal is not as specified by the genetic code. This was... Very hard to convince the scientific world about this because it had been in every textbook for X number of years, but now that's generally accepted, and particularly the base following, which has a really important role in regulating the stopping event and and allowing alternative events to occur. And it's even being exploited today to to expand the genetic code, so the stop codon is being used to incorporate new kind of amino acids into proteins. Now, congratulations on the Marsden Medal, which I understand has some particular significance to you. Yes, so the Marsden Medal was won uh, by my brother in 2005. My brother was a land care scientist who worked on uh, climate change and carbon recycling, and that was for his significant contribution in a broader context to science. Uh, sadly, last year he developed motor neuron disease and died earlier in the year. And so when I was asked to nominate for this medal, it just seemed like an incredibly appropriate way to honour his memory and honour his contribution to science. And I wasn't thinking in terms of winning, I just thought the act of uh, accepting nomination, you know, for me was a very important uh, thing to do. And so now the fact that no, I'm the joint winner, and uh, you know this makes it even more kind of special. So I don't know if there's any other brother combination that have won this medal before. You're being awarded it. It recognises a lifetime achievement. As someone who has worked, you said, 50 years in this field, what do you say to your students when they first start? Do you have words of advice for them? Well, I do. Actually, for me, one of the things which really strongly influenced me as a young scientist was an essay in Time magazine on the essence of science. And it said that science is one of the highest callings that, uh, of human endeavour, but that scientists themselves had to protect it and nurture it and look after it. And this was because there were a few examples around at the time of fabrication of scientific data and things like that. And the other thing that I took from this was it said... Good scientists are people that do good science, but outstanding scientists are people who uh, nurture and train young scientists and make sure that they're helping to create new outstanding science that can actually carry on the discipline. So that fitted with the feeling of what I wanted to do in science. I've always had that philosophy. So apart from my own scientific research... Really the most fulfilling thing for me has been to nurture young scientists and 
my proudest moments in science really are actually hearing about them you know, and their successes on the international stage. And so now I have had over 100 postgraduate students and many of them are in top academic and biotech positions throughout the world. And I have a number of, actually at the University of Otago, people in academic departments now doing extremely well who are my former students. So, you know, that's great pride. Thanks, Warren. Warren Tate is in the biochemistry department at the University of Otago and is joint winner of the 2018 Marsden Medal. And that's us for tonight. But you can listen to these stories again or find out more at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks for listening, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.